I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus 14 is where we'll be this morning, but I'd like to read to you before we get into that text, once again, Psalm 40 verse 5, which was what we used for the call to worship. Listen to this again. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet there are more than can be told. Let's pray together. Father, that's true. Your wondrous deeds are so innumerable. We couldn't count them. We couldn't exhaust time and telling of them. Lord, we have each one of us who have been saved by Jesus Christ, we have a a lifetime of your goodness exerted toward us. Not only that, we have the whole of your scripture testifying of the great works that you have done. Father, I ask you this morning that you would take these moments that we have in your word and remind us of one of the greatest works that you have ever done in leading Israel across through the Red Sea. And Lord, I pray that although this is familiar to it, to us, none of the wonder of it will have been lost on us. But you would come and you would help us to see what a mighty God we have. One whose works are great. Father, help us to see this now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It is indeed right to recount the wondrous works of our God. We could spend untold hours declaring the great things that He has done. Among the great things that God has done, there are few that are better known, more read about, than this passage in Exodus 14. You can't graduate from kids' Sunday school without going through this passage at least a dozen times. It's when the Israelites are led through the sea on dry land. I believe this event happened exactly as it says. I believe it reveals something significant about the character and kind of God that we have. The God who led the Israelites through the dry land when he split the sea is the same God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The same power that he possessed to divide those waters and deliver the Israelites from the Egyptians is the same power he possesses now. It is not lessened. His care for his people has not diminished. His wisdom and salvation is no less. He possesses still the same strength, wisdom, might that he did in Exodus 14. And this event that is recounted for us has greatly influenced the world. 
not just our individual lives, but the whole world almost has heard of the parting of the Red Sea, not entirely. But this great event has at least been recounted down through Israel's history. As Psalm chapter 9, verse 1 tells us again, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount of all your wonderful deeds. Certainly among those deeds, it has to include the parting of the Red Sea. Psalm 75, verse 1, We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. Deuteronomy, chapter 4, 32-35, has Israel on the precipice of the Promised Land. And Moses speaking to them and reminding them of what God has done. He says, For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. You say amen to that. There is no other God like him. None who has the power to do what he did on that day. None other has attempted that. He alone possesses all of that power. I had a conversation a few years ago with somebody about this um, event. And they said to me, it doesn't really matter if that event happened or not. Yes, it does. Either God is like this, or he isn't. Either he possesses the power to split the sea and deliver Israel from the Egyptians, or he doesn't. Either he has the power to deliver us from bondage to sin and death, or he doesn't. It does matter whether it happens or not. And the rescue that we need is of a magnitude greater than the deliverance that that Israel needed from Egypt. And so this is proof that God is able to do what he says he will do. Israel just needed to be delivered from the power of the Egyptians. We need to be rescued from the lies of Satan, the corruption of our flesh, the condemnation due for our sin, the wrath of the Almighty God, and an eternal torment in the fires of hell. Is our God able? Is He willing? And has He? And the answer is a resounding yes. And when we think back to the great acts of deliverance, we go back to the crossing of the Red Sea, and our hearts primarily go back to the deliverance God has purchased for us at the cross of Jesus Christ. And amazingly, it is both the crossing of the Red Sea 
and the work of Christ on the cross that is sung about in heaven. In Revelation chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, you get a scene of heaven and multitudes singing. And it says in Revelation 15, verse 3, and they, that's the audience of heaven, sing the song of Moses. Heaven is still declaring the great deliverance that God enacted in bringing the Israelites through the sea on dry ground. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. And there's another song. And the song of the Lamb. Heaven can't shut up about the great acts of God. The great deliverance that he has brought in delivering Israel through the sea and the great act of the Lamb who was slain in delivering sinners from death. They go on saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. The amazing deeds of the Lord, creation and redemption and deliverance and salvation is sung about in heaven. The story in Exodus 14, I'm sure is well known to uh, most of you. And if for some reason you've never heard this story before, then you're in for a treat. The story is so good that I just plan to walk through it. That's the sermon this morning. But in order to make sure that you know it's a sermon, I'll give you some headings, and they all start with the same letter. Otherwise, it really wouldn't be a sermon, would it? Well, we want to walk through this. It's amazing what this says, and so let's give our hearts attention to the great deliverance that God brought in Exodus 14. First, we'll see... Yahweh's plan. Yahweh's plan. This is in verses 1 through 4. Let me read Exodus 14, 1 through 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haharoth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. The narrative begins with the Lord's plan. He's been leading the Israelites all along. Chapter 13 made sure we are aware of that. As the Lord manifested himself in the pillar of cloud and fire, he was the one that was directing the Israelites where they should go out of Egypt. Instead of leading them on the path north into the promised land, he leads them south towards the wilderness. And so he's been directing them. Now he continues his direction. He's the one who's ultimately guiding them. When we find that he does have a plan for them, But it's a plan for him to put the Israelites in a bit of a predicament. His plan is to put them into a 
situation that's kind of tricky. And this is all his plan. The reason for it is given when he says in verse 3, after telling the people where they are to go, where they're to encamp, we don't know those exact place names and where they are, but the big picture is very clear that they are ultimately going to end up with the wilderness on one side of them, the sea on the other, and the Egyptians coming against them so that they are trapped. But this plan has a purpose to it. Verse 3, For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. He wants it to look like the Israelites don't know what they're doing, don't know where they're going, have nowhere to escape to, and Pharaoh will hear of this and think that these people are trapped and they can go and get them back. Pharaoh is going to be led to believe that he has the upper hand. It's a plan that puts Israel in a bit of a predicament, but it's also a plan for the glory of God. The ultimate purpose is not just to let Pharaoh think he has the upper hand or to put Israel in a predicament. The ultimate purpose is for God to get glory. That's what the Lord says in verse 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. The goal is that God will be shown to be glorious. God says that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart, which is to set him resolutely in his convictions that he can go and get Israel back for sinful purposes, Pharaoh's that is. God will set him in those ways, and this will result in the Lord getting glory over Pharaoh. Romans chapter 9, 17 and 18 finds Paul quoting from the book of Exodus, and he says, the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this, is, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And at the end of this event, the goal is that the Egyptians would know this is Yahweh. If you recall, Pharaoh, when he first encountered Moses, said to Moses, who is Yahweh? By the end of this, he is going to be able to say he knows who Yahweh is. We live in a a universe that is profoundly God-centered, where the culmination of all things is that God's glory will be on display. The majestic excellencies of his being will be revealed. That's the goal. The goal is not for Israel to be cozy. The goal is for God to be glorified. And he has set a plan in action that will result in that. It will be so glorious that we are still glorifying God for it today. Heaven is still declaring his glory now and will continue for all eternity for what he did on that day long ago. Even so, though all the details of the plan aren't revealed yet, they'll come to fruition as the text unfolds for us. That's Yahweh's plan. 
Next is Pharaoh's pursuit. Verse 5 says, And the king, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Haharoth in front of Baal-Zephon. This has been the case through these chapters of Exodus. Pharaoh has been the arch-nemesis of Yahweh and of his people. He's been the perennial enemy who sought to destroy Israel's military capabilities when he had their baby boys thrown into the Nile and drowned. He sought to make their lives miserable as he oppressed them with tasks that they could never fulfill, removing from them straw, requiring them to gather straw and still make the same amount, even more bricks than they had before, giving them an impossible task that they couldn't fulfill and holding them responsible for when they didn't fulfill it. And he continues on, even though the plagues continue to assault him, and he berates God effectively when he promises to do one thing and then never follows through with his promise, when he promises to Moses that he'll let the people go and doesn't follow through with his promises. Even now, the firstborn of Egypt has been killed. They suffered the devastation of their crops, of their cattle, of their bodies, of their sons. And yet Pharaoh still thinks, Let's go one more round. His pursuit looks like insanity. He picks himself up to have one more go at it because he hasn't lost enough yet. But sin and hardness of heart makes you stupid. He sees the situation. And while God will harden him in his heart, still his heart possesses enough sin of its own to drive him to folly. He looks at the situation, he hears that Israel is trapped in the wilderness, and he wants to go and try to get them back, and you see that Pharaoh and his servants are driven by greed. It's a pursuit driven by greed. They're full of iniquity, and they want their slaves back. Because the old economy of Egypt was reliant upon the slave labor that they benefited from. And now they seem to come to their sinful senses in verse 5, and they say, what is this we have done that we've let Israel go from serving us? They want their slaves back. The economic impact of the departure of the slaves begins to hit home, and they realize what they've just lost They seem to have no consideration of the one who has been fighting for Israel all along and who they ultimately take their battle against. But their pursuit is driven by greed, and it's also driven by human power. Pharaoh has a um, 
an army with elite commando units of chariots. He's got the Navy SEALs and the Army Rangers at his fingertips. And this is a superior military might to anything Israel would possess. Even though Israel has 600,000 men, they're a bit of a discombobulated group at this point. No warfare experience. And Pharaoh has his army and chariots, which is a supreme advantage in this. He can effectively take tanks out to round up these rebel slaves. So his confidence is in his military might, his human power, against an otherwise weak and helpless people. He thinks he can go and pick off this wandering group in the wilderness, catch up to them, and gather them and bring them back. So it's a pursuit driven by greed, a pursuit driven by human power, but ultimately and finally it's a pursuit driven by a sovereign God because he explicitly claims to harden the heart of Pharaoh in these decisions. Verse 8, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel. I'm a a chess novice. I don't play much chess. Uh, and when I do, I always lose. But a few times I've played, I've had to be told that you cannot put your king into check yourself. That's an illegal move. It kind of defeats the whole purpose of the game if you're the one who's putting yourself into the position that brings an end to it. Pharaoh is about to put himself into check. But this isn't a game of chess, so the rules don't apply. And ultimately, it is God moving Pharaoh to have him go into a position where he thinks he is in charge and supreme and has all of the power, but he's ultimately putting himself in the position where he is going to be defeated. Despite the wiles of the human heart, It's not as though Pharaoh's plans are sovereign and God's are not. God's plans are sovereign and Pharaoh's are not. Still, Pharaoh is locked into that decision to pursue them. And while he thinks that he's riding in such a way to put the Israelites into check, he's riding into the biggest trap that he's ever seen. Which leads us to Israel's predicament. Israel's predicament, verses 10 through 12. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Israel finds themselves in a a predicament that isn't their fault this time. There will be plenty of times where it is their fault and they're to blame. But this time it's not. They've just followed where the Lord has led. And it puts them into this situation that is so tight that, humanly speaking, there's no way out of it. 
And so the thing that comes out of them is this biting sarcasm. They're pretty good at it. The predicament that they have, however, is not so much based on their circumstances. It's based on the perception of their circumstances. It's based on what they saw and who they feared. Or perhaps based on what they didn't look at and who they didn't fear. At this point, we begin to come to kind of an agreement with Israel. We are tempted to look at them and and think, those foolish people, how could they... How can they respond this way after everything the Lord has done? But our understanding with Israel is, no, we we can't think they're better than us. Because I've heard how sarcastic some of you are. And put in that position, you could probably come up with something just about as good as the Israelites came up with. We understand them. We can relate to them. And we'll see this again and again throughout the Old Testament. The people don't know how the remainder of the chapter is going to unfold. They don't know they're on the verge of one of the greatest events in world history. And so they see the Egyptians come near. Look, it says in verse 10, they lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. Of course, they have this military might coming at them. They have nowhere they can go. They've got the sea behind them that they can't cross. The military in front of them. This is trouble. That's because that's all they can see. And they base their conclusions based on what they can see. And so they go and find Moses and just verbally assault him. Just lay into him. And they're really good at it. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? If you know anything about Egypt, you know they're pretty good at graves. They're still known for their graves. This is biting sarcasm. They think that Moses just led them out to die. They remember with selective memory that they charged Moses with leaving them alone. Just let us serve the Egyptians. We don't want any of this exodus business, they seem to recall. And they bring this up at this moment. They didn't bring it up at the moment a few hours ago when they're led out of Egypt through the Passover lamb, but they bring it up now because it's an I told you so moment. And so they remember how they were right. Not so humble. Neither very correct. Their doubt and selective memory lead them to conclude that the only options before them are death and slavery. That's it. That's all they think that they have in front of them. They can't see the other possibility or the other one who is with them. This is why it's so easy to relate to them. They're good human logicians. They have good logic. There's water there. There's Egypt there. We're dead or slaves. We're good at that. We can come up with all the bad possibilities. That's their predicament. 
Then we have Moses' plea. Verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Moses has been a chosen instrument of God since chapter 3, more likely before he was even born. He begins his career as a man who is unwilling to take up the responsibilities that are being assigned to him. He's looking for any other way or anyone else to do the job. You remember, right, how Moses first engages with the Lord at the end of his conversation with the burning bush in Exodus chapter 4, verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. That's how he started. He's a little bit different now. Which happens to people when they follow the Lord obediently. Change. He's not the same Moses. The way he responds to the people is wonderful. He charges them with this plea, fear not. In a moment where all it looks like you should be doing is fearing, he tells them, don't fear. Stand firm. Don't let your knees shake. See the salvation of the Lord. He's a man full of faith, expecting that God is going to come through. Even this very day, he says, which he will work for you today. And he's so confident that he declares, the Egyptians whom you see today, you'll never see again. And then the essence of it is verse 14. He says, the Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. The factor that the Israelites left out was that they have the Lord, a mighty warrior, who is going to take up his arms and fight for his people. And all Israel needs to do, and this is a hard one, isn't it? Keep their mouths shut. That's Moses' plea. Now we see Yahweh's protection. Verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, 
and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Yahweh's plan to protect his people from the oncoming Egyptians, but they failed to see that that protection was already in action. The protection was already happening. This is why, I think, in verse 15, the Lord says to Moses so sharply, Why do you cry to me? Moses is a representative of the people, so I don't think this is just specifically directed at Moses or some complaining in Moses. It's Moses representing the complaining people. Why do you cry to me? Now, usually we think, well, aren't we to cry out to the Lord in moments of distress? Aren't we to call out to him? Well, yes. But that's not really what the Israelites are doing. They're calling out in complaint and with grumbling. And furthermore, they have already cried out to the Lord. Do you remember Exodus chapter 2, which kicks this whole thing off? Verses 23 through 25. It says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Their cry came up to him. And that's why he raised up Moses. That's why he went through the plagues. That's why he brought the Passover. And now the people are in the wilderness. Do they think that God just all of a sudden, poof, that's all the protection that we're giving today? No more? You've run out of coins? Nothing more that can be vended out to you today? The whole reason that God is acting right now and has been acting is because he's responding to their cry for help. So it's appropriate for God to say, why do you cry to me? The whole reason they're there, and the whole reason Egypt's there, is because they cried out for help in the first place back in chapter 2, and God has not lifted his protection now. The protection that he gives is extraordinary. In this moment, it was divine. The Lord's instructions will lead the people to be protected in, in the only way that could be provided them from above. The protection started with the pillar of cloud, which seems to have the angel of God dwelling in it, move from before them and go behind them. The presence of God now becomes the rear guard of Israel. And it now positions itself between the armies of Egypt and the Israelites. And at night, when this crossing takes place, it says in verse 20, there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. While the details are a little bit hazy on it, Probably what's happening is that the cloud of the pillar of cloud and fire darkens the side of the Egyptians so that they can't come near or see really where they're going and brightens the path for the Israelites. And so they have his protection. And Yahweh's protection leads to Yahweh's path. Yahweh's path. 
Verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night. It made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. All of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand, and on their left. I have a Bible that was given to me when I think I just learned to read. Uh, Six years old, seven years old, somewhere in that age range. On the cover of that Bible, which I spent a lot of time looking at that picture rather than reading what was inside of the Bible, was the drawing of a young boy carrying a lamb in his arms. And um, that's in the foreground, and just behind him are a number of adults. And on either side of the adults are two walls of water towering above them. I loved looking at that drawing. This scene has become so much a part of our Christian culture that we have scenes and images like that all over. The walls of water the people walking through. It's such a mighty scene that we love to think about it. We love to see drawings of it. It's so powerful. It's so unique. It's so quintessential of the deliverance of the Lord. In reality, there are about two million people passing through the dry land in just a few hours. And so you probably couldn't stretch out your hand and touch both walls of water at the same time, however cool that might be. They're probably a couple miles apart to let everybody go through. Nonetheless, this is a feat that can only be accomplished by our great God. The plan and protection that Yahweh provided was for a path for Israel to walk on of dry ground that had just moments before been covered in water. The language is so striking in verse 22. The people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. Almost a contradiction of terms. How do you go into the midst of the sea, which is water, and be on dry ground at the same time? It's almost a riddle. It can only happen when our God creates a way where there is none before it. It should remind us of creation. Genesis chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. 
says, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Out of the water, God brings dry land that will be inhabited for the good of his creation. And here Israel, as they're being delivered, are experiencing a bit of the creative power of God who can bring dry land where there was once water. It reminds us also of Genesis chapter 8 and the flood. 8.1 says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. And then verse 13 In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. God, in his creative acts, provides a place for his people. They get to walk through the sea on dry ground. This arrangement provides absolute protection to Israel. Behind them is the presence of God in the pillar of cloud, protecting them from the armies of Egypt. To their left and to their right are walls of water protecting their flank. No army can come through them. In front of them, only freedom. Israel is invincible at this moment by the protection of God as he leads them to freedom through the dry ground that he created out of the midst of the water. This is the path of life for them. It's a path that leads them to freedom and to life. But it's not a path of life for everyone. The place where God creates Preservation for Israel becomes the place that he creates destruction for Egypt. Isn't it interesting that the same avenue that leads to life for Israel leads to death for Egypt? The Egyptians don't enter the sea to be rescued. They enter the sea to be destroyed. The Lord tells Moses to raise his hand again over the sea and the water returns and now Egypt has nowhere to flee but into the water and they perish. It's a path that destroyed God's enemies and saved God's people. path of both death and life. It's interesting how the mind of God works to create in the same spot both death and life. This is in the entirety of our salvation. The place of the Roman cross, the place of execution, the place of torture and demeaning is the very place where we find life and freedom The place where our Christ died is the place that we find life. The theology of it 
is so deep that it says as we trust in Jesus, our old life is crucified with Christ. And so there is death to the old man. And you go with Christ to the grave. And newness of life comes in through his resurrection. The place where there is death is the place that leads to life. It's so final for Egypt. It says in verse 29, the walls of water were around them. In verse 30, it says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And the place that this culminates is really the place that it began. Remember Yahweh's plan was for his glory? Well, this ends with Yahweh's praise. Verse 31 Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Just a few moments ago, they feared the Egyptians. Now they fear Yahweh. Now they believe the Lord. And now they also believe that Moses is the leader that God has given them. This is God's brilliant plan. It says in 1 Corinthians 10 that as Israel went through the sea, they were baptized into Moses. That simply means that now they are recognized to be followers of Moses. Moses is God's servant, the instrument that God uses to lead his people through out of Egypt But then it goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 10 that we are baptized into Christ. And our attachment to Christ is so excellent that we get attached to his death and his resurrection. We know the picture of baptism being buried in the waters of baptism and coming to life pictured in that great memorial. We belong to Christ. That's our great deliverance. The great exodus has already happened for us at the cross. This is not an application for you to come to your trials in life and wait for the parting of the Red Sea of your trials in life. This is to say that God has already saved at the cross of Christ. It's already been done. Israel, for the rest of their history, isn't going to look for the waters to be parted. They're going to look back to say God already did that for us. And so we look back and say, yes, the Lord is the one who saved at the cross of Christ. That's the great deliverance. And then our response is clearly not to pat ourselves on the back. Israel could not come through that and say, we're just, we are amazing dry ground walkers. the Lord who saved them. And we give praise to him for what he has done for us. Let's pray.
Father, we acknowledge to you that your, your works are wonderful. Your mind is so brilliant that we, here thousands of years after this event happened, still continue to just be amazed at what you have done. How great are your works, O Lord. Father, we not only marvel at what you did for Israel, but we are humbled by what you did for us to rescue us through Christ who endured death for us in order to give us life. Who but our God could rescue sinners? Father, we praise you as well as thank you for the great salvation you've accomplished for us. What a great God you are. Help us now to live lives that are worthy of the calling to which we've been called in Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.